So uh, start with a little audience participation time. How many of you have one of these? If you do, hold it up. Let me just see it. Okay, there you go. All right, now I want you to take it and I want you to turn it like this. Bring it down about here and go like this. Everyone participate, young lady. Sorry, that was my daughter. I have never done that in my whole life, and here's my chance. Okay, let's try that again. Good, okay, you can put them down. Now, how many of you actually felt something? Because if you felt something, I want to talk to you this morning. And if you didn't feel something, you should slip out to the back and let the ushers know, and we'll call 911, and they'll take care of you. Uh, This is for everyone who can fog a mirror or who has breath coming out of their body, and I want to go out on a limb here now and suggest that if you felt something, for you, life is hard. Not necessarily this moment. There are moments in life that um, are just a delight all the way around. But if you have any miles on you at all, you know life is hard. Right? Doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter what pathway I go down. There's always hard things that come with that. So the question that I want us to think about this morning is the pathway that I'm on, the hardness that comes with that, is it worth it? Is it worth it? A few years ago, actually quite a few years ago now, there was a runaway bestseller that had a premise that said, life is hard, get over it. Uh, and, and once you get over it, then you can focus more profitably on how to move forward. I would like to take that premise and move it a little further forward and say, life is hard, turn that into worship. Turn that into worship, align your life so that whatever the hard is that comes with your path, it's actually worth it. And you know it's worth it, and you offer it in praise to God. That's really the background and um, kind of the framing reality around this morning's passage. If you want to take your Bible, would you open to Ephesians chapter 3, please? Uh, If you're using the Bible from the back, which they're out there every week, welcome you to take one of those. Use it anytime you want to. In fact, take it with you. It's our gift to you if you'd like. Uh, It's on page 918. And um, when we come to Ephesians 3, we come to an interruption. Paul has been writing some amazing things about here's what God has done in Jesus. Last week, Gary unpacked for us some of the reality of God, uh, God making a whole new people in Christ, taking Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Gentile people, and saying those old ethnic distinctions, those old uh, social distinctions, those old racial distinctions, those old religious distinctions, those old cultural distinctions, those old national distinctions aren't the point. There's a whole new reality, a whole new people where everyone gets to participate together and everyone gets to participate on equal footing and God's abolished the things that have stood in the way of that. Now, that's really, really exciting news. That's good news. Um, it's gospel. It's, it's, it's saying, look, you don't have to be religious. You have to have Jesus. You don't have to have this moral fiber to you that everyone looks at and goes, that's amazing. You have to have Jesus. You don't have to have a certain spiritual mindset. You don't have to have a certain uh, pattern of life. You have to have Jesus. Once you have Jesus, who's equally accessible to all, then he'll change you and he'll make you part of this one new people. And that's so extraordinary. And And Paul appears to be ready to launch into a prayer now. He's told them all of these good things, 
And he's, gonna, he's, he's basically saying, hey, look, here's all the good stuff God's done for you. Here's all the good things that you enjoy. Let me pray for you. Um, but as the words start to come out of his mouth, he immediately says, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. Let me make something really clear. And he has this interruption. Now, we know that as the scripture is being written, it's a partnership between God and people. And God is working in his infinite sovereign way to make sure everything that's written is exactly what he wants said and how he wants it said, but he doesn't crush the human messenger. And so Paul is just bubbling over with enthusiasm and the words just kind of come tumbling out and he interrupts himself to clarify some things. It's as if he wants to say, look, I want to make sure you really got what I've just said. You really understand it, and you really understand my role in it, because you could be concerned about me, and I want you to know that what I'm going through, it's totally worth it. This is fine. It's worth it. And I want you to understand how much it's worth, so I want you to really think about what I've been telling you, and then he's going to launch into the prayer, which we'll look at next week. So if you want to pick it up, we'll pick it up at that point of kind of interrupting the flow from here's who you are together in Christ, about to pray, oh wait, stop. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, okay, now skip over a whole bunch of words and go down to verse 13. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. There's, your, there's his complete thought. Everything in between is going to now say why he's telling them this. But what he's saying is, look, I'm a prisoner because of the gospel. I'm a prisoner because of Jesus. I'm a prisoner because of the mission I'm on. I'm a prisoner because of you. And I'm suffering. And I don't want you to lose heart. This is actually for your glory. This is actually good. I'm okay with this. It's totally worth it. And then in the middle, he's going to tell us what is worth that. But before we jump into that, I think it's important for us to just kind of remind ourselves of what Paul's been through so that we understand the magnitude of what he's saying. Because what he's saying is, I've taken all of this adversity, and really I'm turning it into an act of worship. And in doing that, he's, he's pointing out to us what is so precious about God's plan and at a secondary level, he's inviting us to do the same in our lives, to take the adversity that comes to us as we live in light of God's plan and turn that into an act of worship, to say, you know, the stuff I'm going through, it's worth it. It's worth it. I offer it to you, God. He says, I'm in prison. Um, there's no precise chronology given to us. Paul and, and the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to nail it down that tightly for us, so we have to make our best judgment. And the most likely scenario is that he's in prison in Rome, and he's probably been imprisoned for more than three years, maybe almost four by this point in time. Leading up to that imprisonment, he was heading to Jerusalem, and along the way, he felt very isolated and alone and even abandoned at times. His close friends and his partners in ministry kept telling him, don't go, don't do this. Paul was convinced God wanted him to do this. They weren't convinced God wanted him to do this. And so they tried to talk him out of it because it was going to be painful and hard, don't go. That's a hard place to be. 
as he's going along, he's also giving kind of his farewell tour. In fact, the elders at Ephesus, he meets them on a beach. He doesn't even go into the city. And he has this sobbing departure from them because they will never see each other again on earth. It's really painful. And the imprisonment and suffering hasn't actually even started. That's just the path that God's chosen for him. And it's hard. So he gets to Jerusalem and he does the right thing while he's there and he's accused falsely. So now there's an injustice being perpetrated because he's accused of something he didn't do and he's, they're seeking to punish him for something he didn't do. It's not even fair. And they, 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 they basically riot, right? They, they um, get so angry that they start to beat him to death. Just a huge crowd mob action, and they're going to tear him limb from limb. Now, we use that phrase, tear him limb from limb, as a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. That's literally what was about to happen. Battle-hardened soldiers rushed in because they were afraid Paul was going to be ripped apart. And they rescue him from the beating. And as they're carrying him out, the crowd gets wilder and wilder until finally this group of soldiers lifts him overhead and carries him overhead so that they will not rip him apart. Not metaphorically, literally. They will not rip his arms from their sockets. They will not rip his legs off. They will not tear him to shreds physically with their hands. They are that angry and it is that violent And the suffering is only beginning. He's arrested for a crime he didn't commit. The next day, the Roman leader sends him in to talk with the Jewish leaders to try to sort this out, and that goes sideways. And again, they come in and rescue him because, again, they are literally concerned he will be literally ripped limb from limb. And then there's a death-packed hit put out on him. More than 40 guys say, I won't eat or I won't drink until he's dead. I will give my life to make sure this guy dies. And the Roman soldiers are so concerned that they rush him out under heavy guard under cover of night to a whole different city where he then falls under the direct purview of the governor. And while there, the governor won't give him justice. He keeps looking for a bribe. So Paul's imprisoned for something he didn't do. He's been beaten severely, nearly torn to shreds. He's got people who have committed to kill him at any cost. And he's got a governor who just keeps calling him in to try to get a bribe, who knows he's not guilty and who, should easily and sh- who could easily and should just dismiss the charges and let Paul go, and he won't. Until finally that governor is replaced. It's been a couple of years that he's been in prison unjustly. And the new governor comes in, and he's not actually that concerned about the truth. He's just looking to fix this thing. He doesn't want to mess with the mess that was left to him by the former governor, so he's going to send Paul to Jerusalem where those killer guys are hanging out. And Paul says, I won't go there. And he has to demand a trial for a crime he didn't commit just to survive. And the the jail and, 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 and suffering is only partway done. Then he's taken under heavy guard, and they take him on a ship that goes into such a storm that the storm, again, not metaphorically, literally splinters the ship, so that there's just little fragments of ship floating in the water, 
and have to swim for their lives. And they swim to shore and they're shivering and cold and soaked and Paul goes to get some wood so they can build a fire and then he's bitten by a snake. I mean, it doesn't, it, it, nothing's going right. It is all going downhill. That's his story. And now he's in Rome and he's been there for a while. And uh, most likely this can be correlated with Philippians more or less the same period of time. And in Philippians, when he's talking about imprisonment, he says, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of here alive. Again, not metaphorically, literally, I might lose my life. So Paul is writing to them from that context. And he's saying, I'm a prisoner because of you and because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has called me to. I am suffering because of you, because of the gospel, because Jesus has called me to, and I'm cool with that. Don't get upset. You need to understand things in their proper perspective. It's totally worth it. I consider myself to be so blessed to be here. And that's what he says in the middle. And if you like to take notes, simple one thought for this morning's passage, everything revolves around this. The gospel is worth it. The gospel is worth it. I'll say that again in case you missed it because that's a complicated phrase. The gospel's worth it. That's what he's saying. He's saying I'm able to, 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 to go through what I'm going through and offer that as worship really because the gospel's worth it. And I want you to understand this reality so that you understand how precious it is what you've gotten and secondarily as you have to deal with the hard things that come in your life because you orient your life around the gospel, it'll be worth it for you too. Every path has hard things. Every path has hard things. There's no easy path through life in a broken world for fallen people, even followers of Jesus. The question is not, can I avoid pain? The question is, on my path, is the pain actually worth it? And Paul says, here's the path, that it's worth it. Okay, so follow along with me, if you will. And we're going to see Paul really focuses on the mission of the gospel being worth it. And then in the process, he unpacks the message of the gospel, which is worth it. So uh, let's pick it up again in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming, and he assumes that grammatically, it's a censor, surely you know, uh, that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of men in other generations and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. 
to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory." There he's interrupting his thoughts. Here's what's happened, and I'm about to pray for you. But first, let me make sure you really understand what's going on with me, how precious the gospel is, how precious being invited into the mission of the gospel is. It's worth it. Let that sink in. Now let's pray. There's our thought flow. So let's take the let's that sink in part and look at that for just another couple of minutes. A lot of this is talking about Paul's mission, right? or more accurately, God's mission that Paul's been invited into, and Paul is amazed that God would do that. Uh, There's a word in here that's really a fun word because Paul just made it up. Uh, It's never been used, as far as we know, prior to this moment in this passage here. Nobody else in the ancient world, no other scripture writer, nobody's used the word. Paul has to make it up, and it's the word that our Bibles translate a little differently because it's not even really a word. And so they have to figure out how to translate it. It says, though I am the very least of all the saints. That word is leaster. I am the leaster of the saints. Right? And what he's doing is he's taking an ultimate phrase and making it more ultimaterist. Like, like uh, fourth graders on a playground. Oh, yeah? I beat you. Oh, yeah? I beat you a hundred times. Oh, yeah, well, I beat you a million times. And then the nerd, oh, I beat you a Google times. And then somebody says, oh, I beat you infinity times. And somebody else says, I beat you infinity times one plus seven. That's not a number. I beat you infinity times infinity. That's not a number. You, you can't expand on infinity. You can't be less than least. Paul's saying, oh, yeah, well, I'm, 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 I'm least-terist, lowest, lower than lowest low. Right? He's got this sense that comes actually from reflecting on his own life and saying, I, can, I can't believe that God would pick me. He'd pick me to be his, and then he'd say, hey, kid, suit up and take the field. I want you to run some plays. I've got a plan for your life. In fact, I get to be the apostle. There's this mystery, which I'll leave you in mystery about that for a minute. We'll come back to that in a minute. This mystery that's been unknown for generations prior. Everyone wanted to know about it. You told me. You revealed it to me as one of the apostles, and now I get to tell everyone. This is so cool. Uh, This is so cool. I get to be a missionary. How cool is that? That's literally what Paul's feeling as he's being beaten, as he's being imprisoned. And and don't don't get the sense that it's because he's tough, because he's not. He's courageous. Courage is doing the right thing even when you are afraid, Not, not having fear. It's not like it doesn't hurt. The beatings didn't hurt him. Oh, he just was good. He just didn't have pain receptors or something. No, he's just like you and me. In fact, Jesus more than once actually has to appear to him personally and say, 
buck up, son. It's okay. I, I, I got you. Don't, don't, don't fail here. Don't, don't freak out. Don't duck and cover. Don't flinch. Why did he do that? Because Paul's just like you and me. He's not tough. He's just a guy. But he has something really clear. He's got a clear picture that what I'm going through is worth it. I can't believe that I would get to be on the team, that I'd get to run some plays, that in fact I'd get to be in such a central role. That is so amazing. All of us are used to and regularly sacrifice lesser things for greater things. All of us are used to and regularly pay a little bit of pain for something that's worth it. And you can tell sometimes how much it's worth it to me by how much pain I'm willing to go through. Moms, was it easy having kids? Ah, you know, it's just sitting there, sipping a glass of iced tea, and next thing you know, here's a baby. It's a, it's a journey, and it's not a comfortable journey, and it's got its moments of challenge. But we're here, right? If somebody didn't do some, some value math and say it's worth it, none of us would be here. There would have been one child born, and that would have been it. The whole human race would have been gone. Like, we're not doing that again. And yet we're here, and most of us are children of multiple child households. So our parents did that again and again. It's like, wow, that was hard. Yeah, but it was worth it. That, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't, don't, don't grow discouraged. You need to understand how precious this is. This is amazing that I would be entrusted with the mystery of Christ. And verse nine, I would have the opportunity to bring to light for everyone this plan of God. And then look at the grace and gift language he uses. Right, he says uh, in verse two, this ministry he's got is, is of God's grace. It was given to me as a gift. Verse seven, it's a gift of God's grace given to me. Verse eight, it's grace that was given to me to preach the gospel. I mean, this is, this is, this is awesome. God lets me do this. How cool is that? And he, he has a clear understanding of how it fits. If you look in verse two, as he's saying, look, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace given to me. That's, he's talking about his ministry. That word stewardship, if you turn back to chapter one, verse nine, talking again about mystery, and then verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time. That word plan about God's plan is the same word about Paul's stewardship, same, same word. Or verse nine of chapter three, I get to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. That's the same word. This idea of God's eternal plan that he's working out, and I get a little piece of that. My stewardship is a little subpart of that plan. I get, I, get a, I get to be involved in what God's doing. That's why I can do this. Not because I'm tough, but because the gospel's worth it. And the mission of the gospel that I'm on. It's worth it. Some of you probably have read the book or maybe even saw the film um, Insanity of God. In there he tells a story about one of 
um, one of the guys that he met. It's, it's, he's interviewing a lot of people who have been persecuted around the world, and he meets a guy, and he describes him as the toughest man I've ever met. And he's a soldier, former soldier in an Asian country that he doesn't disclose, who patrols the border with his squad, uh, and there's an invading foreign nation that's constantly trying to get across the border, so there's a lot of firefights and a lot of action, and this soldier is in a lot of battles, but he said, actually, what I liked the most was when I could sneak up on an enemy soldier and slit his throat, and it, it gets more graphic from there, I'll stop. Um, but it, basically, he's a religious zealot, and he does that as an act of worship to his God. And uh, as, as Nick, the uh, guy that's doing the study, is talking to him, he just pops into his head. I wonder how many people he've, you've, he've, he's killed. But it pops out of his mouth, too. He said, how many people have you killed? And the guy said, I stopped counting at 100. And that's not the ones in firefights. That's the ones whose throats I've slit. I don't know. And he's like, wow, this guy is afraid of nothing. He is the toughest guy I know. And he was doing all that out of religious zeal for a false religion. And then he comes to faith in Christ. He's still the toughest guy. He's still the most courageous guy. He's not slitting throats, praise God for that. He's sharing the gospel. He's smuggling Bibles. He's doing all these different things. And it's a country where that is under pain of death. And he's beaten. And he is left for dead. And he is starved. And he is imprisoned. And his story actually sounds an awful lot like Paul's. For the sake of the gospel. At one point, Nick thinks, um, I wonder how this guy's family fits into the story. Because he led his wife and children to Christ. Are, Are they involved in the ministry, and he asks a question, and the guy comes unglued and comes flying across the room and grabs him, and Nick immediately thinks, 100 plus, uh, I don't know. And the guy says, God couldn't ask me that of me. And, and he realizes, oh, thank the Lord, he's mad at the Lord. <laughs> um, and they start talking, and Nick, you know, what am I supposed to tell this guy? You know, he's, he's doing things under pain of death, and if he brings his family into it, they could die too, but it just feels like something's broken in his whole response here, and, and uh, you know, this guy's braver than anyone I've ever known. He's tougher than anyone I've ever met, but it's actually not about toughness at all, and as he's interacting with the guy, he, he believes God leads him to ask a simple question, and he just asks, is Jesus worth it, and it just stops the guy dead in his tracks, and then he breaks down sobbing, and in a moment, everything changes, and he says, you know, Jesus is worth it. I don't want to rob my family of their ability to worship God. I sure don't want them to suffer. But it's not a matter of courage. It's a matter of value. It's a matter of worship. And he says, they need to be able to join me too. And 12 years later, when Nick wrote the book, he and his family were still doing ministry, and God was protecting them. But there was a shift in perspective. It wasn't about how tough am I. Can I gut this out? Because that guy could gut almost anything out, but not that, not his family. But it wasn't about that. It was about what's actually worth it. What's actually worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Paul says, look, I'm so excited. I mean, I don't like the beatings. I don't like the shipwrecks. I don't like being bitten by snakes and abandoned by friends and falsely accused and unjustly tried. I don't like any of that stuff. But Jesus is worth it. 
The gospel's worth it. You're worth it. This is ultimately for your glory. I'm good with that. Please don't, don't be overly distressed. God's working a plan, and he's empowering me for that plan. He says that in there right after he says I'm the least, but God's power is at work. You know, you and I are actually called into that same ministry. None of us are the uh, apostle to the Gentiles in the way that he was. But we're all part of the mission of God. It, he, Paul's already said that in chapter 2 where he describes salvation and he finishes the section by saying we're, we're God's workmanship and he's created things for us to do. And even in this passage he says the fact that you're this new humanity that is being pulled together by God, um, that's actually part of the plan. It's not just proclaiming the gospel, it's portraying it. You're exhibit A of the very gospel that you proclaim. Um, look at what it says here in, um, well, let's see, where is that? Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The angelic realm is watching, and almost certainly he means to focus on the demonic realm. Like this whole world is a mess, and the mess actually didn't just start with Adam and Eve. They participated willingly, and they are morally culpable for that, but the rebellion started before that with the demonic realm, who said they could do God's stuff. And now Jesus has come, and he is bringing all things under his rule, bringing it together. There's the mystery. The mystery is Jesus and his work. In this passage, specifically bringing Jew and Gentile together into one new humanity, chapter 1, verse 10, it's a bigger reconciliation of everything. And the church, this new humanity, is that starting point picture that God points to and says, here, here's what I'm about. And I'm taking charge. And it's going to look like this. And he says, this is so cool. We have been rescued by God and made a new people that actually by our very existence proclaim God's goodness and his authority to those that are in rebellion. Which has an interesting question to ask as we look at our own lives and say, how much does my engagement with the body of Christ actually look like that? How easy is it for me to come and just look for what I can get instead of how I can be involved with what God's doing. Paul is ready to serve the church even by laying down his life. It's an important question for me to ask, what will I do to serve the church? And how easy is it for me to gripe or to gossip or to say, I'm going to get out of here what I want, or I'm just going to get out of here and take that kind of consumeristic mindset that's so easy. He's like, this is amazing. God's doing this incredible thing and he's taking broken people and he's making them into something new and by the power of the Spirit, they can look something like Jesus and they can serve each other something like Jesus and they can serve the world something like Jesus. And in doing that, not only are they blessed and the world's blessed, but a message is proclaimed to those very rebels who despise our Lord. He's saying... Don't, don't be upset for me. I get to be right on the front lines of that. Hard, you bet. Worth it? Absolutely. 
The calling of God on my life is worth the suffering that comes with it. And as I keep that in perspective, I can turn it into worship. That's Paul's example, Paul's self-explanation. And he gives that to them, not just so they'll know, but so when they have the same kind of opportunity, they can follow in his footsteps. And it's not just that mission of the gospel, the message itself is, is fleshed out here too. He's mostly focusing on his role in that, but he does tell us some cool things, reminds us of some cool things about the gospel, right? It's this mystery. A mystery is not something secret and weird. You have to have the special decoder ring or learn the special handshake. It, it's, a, it's a city, Ephesus is a city filled with mystery religions that actually acted that way. Right? They had their own little mysteries. He said, here's the real mystery. It was something God had planned from eternity past, and nobody could have guessed it in its entirety until Jesus came along, but now it's obvious to anyone who has the eyes because he's revealed it to us, his apostles, and we're telling you, if you'll just listen, here's the mystery. God's in control, and he's taking control of his earth again, and he is doing this redeeming work, and he is going to sum up everything under Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 10. And the starting point for that is redeeming for himself different people and making them into a new humanity, chapter 2 and our chapter here. There's the mystery that couldn't have been guessed before, and it's beautiful to behold. It's the gospel that Jesus is the one who changes everything. And those old distinctions, the distinctions we want to make don't matter. You don't have to be the morally perfect one. You don't have to be the religiously upright one. You don't have to be the one with the right heritage or the right background or the right traditions. None of that matters. It's have you embraced Christ? Everybody needs Christ. And everybody who embraces him and just comes and surrenders and trusts is accepted. And then the transformation takes place. God will do the transforming. That's the good news. That's why I'm in prison, and that's okay. That's worth being in prison for. He talks about some of the good things. First, kind of tying into the last chapter really explicitly, verse 16, he says, this mystery, um, verse six, I'm sorry, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. There's this idea of fellow, three times. We're fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. We're brought together as one. And then he unpacks just a little bit how cool the gospel is and what we get, right? There's this um, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is, I can't even articulate. It's not even fathomable, all that we get in Christ. Verse 12. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. We can come to God and God listens. What's on your heart? Go talk to God. He'll listen. You have an immediate audience. Whenever you want, however you want, he's attentive because you're his and you have a relationship. Who has that? Saying, that's why I'm in prison. I'm in prison for that. That's, that's worth being in prison for. The suffering I'm going through has a purpose and I'm good with that. Verse 13. All of this is ultimately for your for your glory. It will work out all of these great things that God has for you. Um, I want to ask you two questions. One, first, have you embraced Christ, the gospel? You don't have to be religious. You don't have to have it together. You don't have to clean up your life. You can't. That's the good news. You don't have to. 
You just have to embrace Christ. And we'd love to talk to you about what does that really mean and help you if you're in that place. We'd love to have that conversation. I know most of us have embraced Christ and the gospel is something that's precious. Do I actually see it as such? Is my life being shaped around the reality of Christ's work in me and through me in the world? And do I see it as precious like it really is so that I say, you know what? All paths are hard. The hard that comes with my path, thank you, God. It's worth it because the gospel's worth it and Jesus is worth it. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy for making us your children and calling us into your plan in this world. May we learn to treasure that afresh. Lord, as we give these gifts, may they be acts of worship and may our lives be given as acts of worship as well. We pray in your name, amen.